Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today is a cannabis mom working to destigmatize cannabis use, particularly for mothers. A few years ago, she wouldn't have self-described as a weed mom, but she's found her sparkle in writing about cannabis to inform, uplift, and occasionally challenge her readers while helping to push the conversation forward. She's a freelance writer and author of Weed Mom, the Canner. Can a Curious Woman's Guide to a Healthier Relaxation, Happier Parenting, and a Chilling TF Out. <laughs> chilling, <laughs> chilling the fuck out. Her articles have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, The Week, Civilized, Vice, Double Blind, What's Up Mom, Scary Mom. She holds a BA from Dartmouth College and an MA from American University. Danielle Simone Brand, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. How are you? Thank you, Montel. I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. It's been great. Thank you so much for being here. Look, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? You know, where you went to college, et cetera. Talk a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I grew up in Hawaii. And um, as you probably know, there's a big cannabis culture there. But I wasn't really exposed to it much growing up. It wasn't my scene. It wasn't my thing. I um, traveled a lot, went to France for my senior year of high school, went to the East Coast for college, and kind of adventured and explored quite a bit. But cannabis really wasn't part of my, you know, my repertoire for quite a while. Um, after I went to graduate school in international peace and conflict resolution, I worked in academia and policy in D.C. for a few years before I realized that it really wasn't feeding my soul. It wasn't calling to me anymore. Um, and so I actually transitioned while still living in D.C. to being a yoga, meditation and wellness instructor. So I went all around Capitol Hill and gave yoga uh, lessons at, at lunches and helped people learn how to live a healthier lifestyle. And I taught at American University as well in that capacity. So really what I see my my writing on cannabis and parenting about is it really it brings together that that intellectual side, that research and, you know, and, and policy type of side with the health and wellness background that I have. And it all comes together perfectly because I love cannabis and I am all about women's and mom's empowerment. And it comes together just perfectly in this subject for me. Well, but let's back up, though. Back then when you were going through college and you were younger, I mean, how did you perceive pot when you were growing up? Was it something that was accepted by your family? You, know, you were living in Hawaii, so were people accepting of it, but just not involved in it? Yeah, you know, for the most part, it was just kind of seen as like a subculture, a part of Hawaii that makes Hawaii what it is, but not necessarily something encouraged for, um, for, for you know, high school students or for the people that, that I was hanging out with necessarily. Now, I was exposed in high school a little bit, I'll say, but it wasn't my, you know, it wasn't my wheelhouse. It wasn't my thing. I didn't understand cannabis. Um, and that's because, you know, we had no information about cannabinoids, about terpenes, about different modes of delivery. And that, you know, it was just on the illicit market, you get what you get, right? <laughs> um, and so because of that, pot really had no rhyme or reason to me. And so I didn't understand it as a wellness tool. And it really wasn't until later, and I tell the story in my book. So actually there's a little uh, side story there, which is that I met and married a cannabis enthusiast and still wasn't one myself. <laughs> um, but you had, when was your first experience with cannabis? Well, in high school, I was, I, you know, I, I, I tried it probably, you know, 15, 16 years old with some friends and we giggled a lot. And then we went to McDonald's and it wasn't really, you know, <laughs> 
<laughs> very eventful. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And then, you know, in college, definitely I was exposed here and there. But like I said, you know, it wasn't my go to because, you know, I thought of it, first of all, only as recreation, only as, you know, something to get high. And I thought, well, alcohol has more kind of predictable effects on me. And so that's what I gravitated to, like most people really, you know, around that time that I was around, gravitated toward alcohol instead. Um, later on, I realized that alcohol is a toxin and that it makes my migraines much worse and that it's something that I'm much healthier without. So I actually don't drink anymore. But, you know, on that sort of journey, um, I did discover cannabis eventually, not until I was a mom. Um, you know, I, did, I discovered it really as this health and wellness tool, I should say. Um, and I mean, you, know, you said you, 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 you met your husband and, and he was a cannabis enthusiast. He was. And, you know, I'll be honest here he leaned on cannabis a little too much. Um, specifically, I realize now that he was self-medicating. He was using cannabis to help him address the mental health issues that really um, should have had a full, like many pronged approach. Cannabis could have been part of that. Absolutely. But, you know, other self-care practices, better, you know, self-care habits, therapy, those things could have really supported his use of cannabis, but instead he was leaning only on cannabis. And I saw it as something that was kind of detrimental to him, to be honest, because of that. Got it. Well, now tell us a little bit about your new book, Weed Mom, The Cannabis Curious Woman's Guide to Healthier Relaxation, Happier Parenting, and Chilling the Fuck Out. Tell me a little bit about this book. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, because I was kind of a later in life cannabis convert, honestly, and I was, you know, just to finish that story with my husband, I was judgy of him for a little while and sort of pushed away his interest in cannabis. And he began to hide it more and it became an issue in our relationship. And there were other issues too, of course, that was just one of them, but it kind of came to a head where we almost got divorced. This was about six, seven years ago by now. Um, and cannabis was kind of part of that. Honestly, I thought his overuse of it was a big issue in our relationship. However, um, once I started exploring, learning about cannabis from this intellectual perspective as a writer, um, and then experimenting myself in the legal marketplace, I realized this is a real wellness tool. And so my, my perception shifted a lot. And I, it was like a whole new world opened up to me. And I realized that other moms that I knew probably didn't have the um, access to that information, didn't know that it was a wellness tool, or maybe they did, but they were ashamed and they were hiding it because they thought, you know, because of all the stigma. So well, you know, I tell you, I think that that there's just what you just touched on, just that little bit about your relationship. I hope your book covers a lot of that and talks about that because, you know, there are a lot of couples out there facing the same dilemma that you were faced with. I mean, you were faced with, I mean, you know, uh, people who were one of the two spouses enjoys cannabis a little bit more than the other, or one of them uses and one of them doesn't. You know, I've literally stopped drinking um, now almost 30 years ago. Well, really, I stopped in 2000 um, and um, uh, haven't really had more than maybe a sip of something a year, once a year, normally at New Year's Eve. Um, I normally sip a little bit of champagne, then I stop. And if I, during the year, if I have, you know, a sip, I think this entire last year throughout COVID, I didn't have any drinks at all. I just had a little bit of alcohol over over New Year's this past year. Um, but I kind of steered away and went away from alcohol way back uh, when my journey with cannabis began because, you know, I, I had some information about the fact that, you know, alcohol was very detrimental to some of the medications that I was taking. 
And so I was, if I was going to go through all this trouble of taking this medication I had to take, I wasn't going to have, have its effect be lessened by alcohol. So I just stopped. And I have been a cannabis user, but you know, I'm in a relationship where my spouse is not at all. She's never used it. And, um, though she has applauded my use because she recognizes what it does for me medically. And she's seen it herself personally. Um, I know other couples who, you know, that becomes a point of contention where, you know, they just don't understand. So does your book cover that in a chapter or at least give some advice to couples dealing with issues like that? Absolutely. And I do tell my own story in the book, even though it's mostly reported, you know, I'm writing uh, in the capacity as a journalist, but I also bring in some of my own story because I want the book to be relatable and conversational and fun and interesting for people to read. And also I wanted to be a believable narrator, right? Somebody who shares the fact that I've been through some struggles. You know, my husband specifically has been through the struggles and I've been on the other side of those struggles. Um, and so I realized that, you know, responsible use is really important. The way that we consume, the intention, the, you know, frequency, the, the dose, the mindfulness that we bring to it, all that really matters. And so I really wanted to bring that into the book. And I have a chapter on uh, sex, intimacy, relationships, and cannabis. Um, so I talk about many of the benefits um, of bringing cannabis into one's sex life, one's relationship with a partner, but also about how to address it when your partner doesn't consume or has stigmas, has some stereotypes about it, ways into that conversation. And that's actually a lot of what my book is, is ways into the conversation with different people in your life, whether it's your partner, your, your children, your um, social circle, older folks, um, you know, all these. I think that to break these stigmas and change the narrative, we have to talk to all these people about cannabis and about how it helps us, those of us who do consume for, you know, for health and wellness. Absolutely. I mean, what's the main goal of your book? To educate? Yeah, I'd say it's to educate and to empower women and moms to be able to use plant medicine confidently, to be able to, you know, feel confident in their choice, to responsibly consume and to know that it can really enhance their health and their well-being and even their parenting, honestly. You know, and we're living in a time when, you know, there's there's less emphasis put on education and just more emphasis put on either consume or the business models of cannabis. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's time for books like yours that uh, could be so helpful in just, you know, ensuring the narrative is one that is of information. I mean, uh, so far we, we've seen that the industry seems to focus a little bit too much, I think, on the business aspect of this and not the B2C, the business to consumer aspects of this. And consumers need to be knowledgeable. And um, I, I know you probably spend a lot of time trying to give a little background and other things. I have not read your book yet, and I, I'm going to reach out and try to get a copy of it and do so. But um, talk a little bit more about the book and what you're, what you're doing in it and some of the other chapters. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. It's, you know, so it's all about education and awareness and empowerment, like you, you just said. So I wanted to, I want to educate moms about consuming on the legal marketplace. What do cannabinoids do? How do we consume them in ways that really do support us in our roles in the world, our ability to parent and work and be our best selves? I also, like I said earlier, wanted to 
really deepen these conversations because we're in a changing cultural moment, in my view, when it comes to cannabis. And I want the narrative to be different going forward. I want my kids' generation to realize what a helpful and healing plant this is and how many uses it has. And I think that parents play a role in that. Canna moms, canna dads, like we play a role in this changing narrative. And also in our communities, representing ourselves out there is you know, responsible, taxpaying, et cetera, et cetera, upstanding people who also benefit from cannabis in some way. So, and I also, I want new consumers to understand the history of cannabis prohibition in this country and how it was a racist control oriented policy, not at all about public safety. And that's an important piece of cannabis history. And I want people to understand why cannabis is a social justice and equity issue too. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about, you also address in the book, you know, different um, consumption methods rather than just smoking. You talk about, you know, um, uh, edibles and other things and talk about microdosing and how that can help you stay productive while still boosting your mood. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, so like like I referenced earlier in on the illicit marketplace, you never knew what you were getting, right? You, weed or no weed, right? Whereas now in the legal marketplace, we have a lot more options. And of course, the more consumers demand those options, the more we're going to get in terms of understanding what's in our cannabis, right? Our cannabinoids and terpenes and, um, you know, how it was grown, how what, what contaminants hopefully, you know, aren't in there. But, you know, all these lab analyses, certificates of analysis, these are things that we now have access to. So with all this information, and it can be kind of overwhelming for new consumers. And that's really why I wrote this book to help kind of hold people's hands through that process of learning about cannabis and learning about how it affects our individual bodies, our endocannabinoid systems, and how to really just use it as a tool for, for well-being. So, you know, I dial in there. I dial into all the different ways to consume. You know, it's not just smoking anymore. As we know, we've got vaping and vaporizing and tinctures and sublinguals and, you know, fast acting edibles and drinks and suppositories and lubes and, you know, the list goes on. Um, so all that can be kind of dizzying for a new consumer and especially someone walking into, you know, a, a cannabis store, a dispensary. They've never been inside, don't know what to expect, don't know what's there, don't know what they want even. I, I really wanted to, to be that, you know, girlfriend that like takes you by the hand and says, here you go. This is what you need to know. And here's how you can consume responsibly. And, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, you based the book on questions that people have asked you. So, I mean, what is one of the most pervasive questions you get asked about cannabis? Oh, gosh, so many. And, and you're right. And this book came because I was I was developing a beat as a, uh, a cannabis writer and a parenting writer at the same time. And so people started coming to me with their can cannabis and parenting questions like, you know, how, how, what sh how should I consume to help my anxiety? Anxiety is such a big part of our everyday lives. And I know so many moms struggle with this. You know, we're, we're trying to do the best for our children. We're trying to do some work in the world. We need to take care of ourselves. There's, you know, financial stresses, social stresses, you know, the world is a, you know, the pandemic has been a big stress on parents. So, you know, the anxiety is a big one. People ask me, how do I consume, you know, to tame my anxiety? Um, they also ask me, like, you know, how can I consume without getting high? How can I get some of the health benefits, um, you know, by microdosing, but still being functional throughout the day? Things like that. They ask me. I, that always, that always, it, it always throws me when somebody asks me, you know, I, I wouldn't mind it if I didn't get high, but they'll go and have three drinks or three glasses of wine. Stop. I mean, that, that's, that to me is one of the most ignorant aspects of this. I mean, mankind has reached out for a euphoria since the time of Jesus. Remember, he used to turn water into wine. 
So it's not like, you know, and, and, you know, the three wise men weren't stupid. They took cannabis to the Mother Mary because they recognized that, you know, cannabis was a tool that helped, you know, the baby relax and they did so. So, I mean, it, it always throws me when I hear from somebody, well, you know, I would use it if I didn't get high. Well, then you would drink, you know, grape juice because it doesn't make you drunk. But they don't. They sit down and drink a glass of wine. So, you know, euphoria, euphoria is euphoria, euphoria. And you have a right to that if you choose to. But I, I just had to throw that out there because it, it throws me. Do you ever explain to people? I, I don't understand what, what, what that means when you say, because I don't want to get high. What does that mean? Well, I, you know, I think that's an excellent point. And I think that we just have a lot of hangups in our culture about, you know, being high, right? And what that means, altered consciousness, even though you're right, you know, alcohol alters our consciousness quite a bit, um, as well as plenty of other uh, things that people are comfortable taking, they alter our consciousness, you know, plenty of pharmaceuticals do as well. Um, you know, I think reefer madness was really, really successful. <laughs> And it's, you know, that just the whole propaganda machine that went on for decades and that still in some ways is a part of the, the conversation. I mean, not in some ways. It's still part of the conversation. It's still part of the conversation. I think yeah. A lot of people don't don't take the time to educate themselves and understand that, you know, I mean, whether the contrary to what popular beliefs is, America was built on hemp and cannabis. I mean, you know, if you go way back to the 1600s and you know, early 1700s. You know, there were lots of folks walking around smoking a little hemp and they weren't back there testing it to see if it was 0.3% THC. They knew that they were getting whatever they got because it gave them a euphoria. And why? Because we were living in times that were crazy. You know, you had to walk into the woods and try to find the softest leaf you could just to wipe your butt. And, you know, and, and, you know, mankind was still sleeping in the dirt. And, you know, but we don't recognize the fact that, you know, our entire survival in the new world was based on our ability to utilize hemp, hemp for clothing, hemp for fiber, hemp for rope, hemp for, you know, tents. You know, the entire Revolutionary Army was clothed in hemp. People don't understand that. And, you know, the only thing that the in the Civil War that the North and South had in common was that they wore uniforms that were made out of hemp. So, you know, and we can go back to our founding fathers and remember that back in the early 1600s, you were considered, you know, a non-patriot if you, if you were a farmer and you didn't grow hemp. Um, and most people consumed, you know, hemp seeds because, you know, even back in the late 1600s, they recognized that the hemp seed was, you know, one of the, heavy, the most protein-laden seeds you could grow. So you ate a hemp porridge. Not to get you high because you couldn't get high off of it anyway, even if you tried, but because hemp was a critical part of our survival. Mm-hmm. And we did that throughout all the way through the Civil War. You can go back and look at newspapers at, at the end of the Civil War and, and go to the back and the classified. And there must be at least 30, 40 ads in every single newspaper for some cannabis based tincture. That made you feel better, made you capable of working in the sun longer. They used to give cannabis to slaves so that they would, how the hell do you think you could beat somebody and expect them to go do something for you, you know, without getting them a little high to make sure that they don't come and chop your head off. So, I mean, the truth of the matter is it's been a part of and was a part of our makeup as a society. And then all of a sudden, because, you know, the person who really led the charge against cannabis lost his job as a prohibitionist for alcohol, 
was known to speak in favor of cannabis even while he was a prohibitionist for alcohol. I'm talking about Anslinger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, uh, uh, then, you know, because he lost his job, he had to figure out something to do. So he wanted to jump on the mood of the day. And that was make sure that you put those dark people down as best you could and blame everything and all social ills on them and move it forward. They really get reefer madness. You can look back and see all the racist implications in that movie and in the attitude of the day. Mm-hmm. And we move it forward even to today. We still see the racist attitudes in cannabis and hemp today, where, you know, 80% of the people who are sitting in prisons right now for any form of nonviolent cannabis violation are people of color. Mm-hmm. That's that's deliberate, not because it was a mistake or it just happened to be, or it's because more people of color use it. No, that's bullshit. The truth of the matter is, is that it was something that was deliberately done. So do you do you go into that in your book? Do you focus in and let people know that you know you've been misled, hoodwinked? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, thank you for going through those many, many uses in the past. And I mean, that's something that makes me very excited about cannabis now is all the uses that we have. But but to get to your to your question, yes, I, I so I take one chapter to go through the history of human and cannabis interactions. So that begins thousands of years ago, right? And thousands of years ago. <laughs> Obviously, I've got to gloss over some of that, but, you know, bringing in some salient points about how we've been using this plant for nutrition, for materials and for sacrament and for medicine um, for, for so, so, so many years. And that really prohibition was a, a blip in the or is because we're still in prohibition. It's a blip in the history, the long, long, long history of human cannabis interaction. And absolutely, I talk about the Anslinger story and how, you know, cannabis went from something that was either embraced or unknown by many people to being completely demonized on totally false pretenses, very much tied into the particular racism and xenophobia of the time that, you know, obviously we still see today in slightly different forms, but it's still there. Um, So absolutely, I, I want to bring awareness for people who maybe don't have a lot of connection to the history of cannabis, don't really know what prohibition was about, to understand that this that this was a policy that did a lot of harm, does a lot of harm, continues to do so. The war on drugs in general has done so much harm, contributed to the prison population just in a staggeringly, you know, saddening way. And that, you know, really it's our responsibility to right some of these wrongs. If we want to enjoy cannabis, and, and I and I hope, you know, more and more people do as time goes on, but if we want to enjoy cannabis, we also have to be aware of of the roots in this country of prohibition and how much harm it did and what we should do now to 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 end it. And what what's what state are you coming to me from? Where you at? Where do you live at right now? Where are you coming to me from? So um, I was in California when I started writing about cannabis, but I moved to a prohibition state. So I live in Idaho now, and we don't have any legal access here unless we go to another state. And you know that's 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 really interesting because you know. As much as a lot of the legal states do exist, you know, the illicit market in the legal states are normally bigger than the legal market. And the reason why is because, you know, states have now, you know, even though we claim to be legal, we have criminalized it with taxes in a way that makes the legal market almost it's impossible almost for that to to survive and thrive. So just, you know, being a writer on cannabis that you are, uh, talk a little bit about what you think is, you know, we're in 2022 now. And, you know, we have been sitting around now for seven years where, you know, the numbers have increased almost every single year. 
We're now up to 37 states in the District of Columbia that have some form of legal cannabis, whether it be recreational or medicinal. Yet we still have federal opposition and it's still against the law federally. And right now we've seen in the last six, seven, eight months that there we're we're reaching a you know a precipice here where you know state and federal laws are are being so twisted you know there are certain states like i think it's kansas and um uh, others that have literally where police have been basically stealing the profits from legal cannabis operations um, just to see if they can, you know, throw a monkey wrench into the whole system. Where do, where do you think we're going right now? You know, that's the that's the billion dollar question, right? What's what's next in, in this whole movement for, for legalization? So I actually recently wrote a piece that hasn't been published yet on the prospects for legalization this year and the different bills that are in front of Congress um, in various stages and uh, what we might see. It looks at this point like the most likely movement this year is safe banking, the Safe Banking Act, which I know is really mixed in the cannabis community in terms of who supports it and who doesn't, because, you know, there are some good arguments for and there are some good arguments against. Um, I think that if safe banking that would you know, I, I know you know, but for your listeners, um, that would uh, allow banks to work above board with cannabis businesses and eliminate, you know, some of that uh, danger of them holding cash all the time, being subject to armed robbery, you know, and obviously just, you know, any business in this country needs access to capital, access to investment, access to, you know, loans and bank accounts, all these things. So safe banking could do a lot for the industry, but without any kind of social equity or expungement clauses, I think that it would be a real bummer if we just get banking and we don't get anything else. So I, I think that we, we may get banking, but I'm not necessarily sure that's true. Um, you know, and, and we'll, if we get banking, will it be, uh, will you be able to do interstate commerce? You know, can I have a profit in California and put it in a bank in Arizona? Mm, we don't know yet. You know what I mean? And again, I understand that, you know, the cannabis itself is all state individually. So does that mean that we would go to state credit unions? Do we go to state federal banks? I mean, I think that the banking issue is going to be one that they, they need so much more work on. And it, the only reason why I think it would happen is if the Fed could figure out a way to stick in their hands into your bank account, and take money right off the top. That's the only way. And then that's going to, again, impact the legal market in a way that it makes it almost impossible for you to operate legally. So we'll have banking, but we'll still have people putting cans of cash in, you know, in 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 the ground, in the desert, because they can't find a vault to put it in. Yeah, that could be true, too. It's not going to solve all the problems, that's for sure, if safe banking passes. But I do think that it has the best chance in terms of that first incremental step toward cannabis, you know, legalization on the federal level. I think we need to deschedule cannabis, just take it off of schedule one, make it so much easier to research. We're already getting there where research is becoming a bit easier. But still, we, we, need, we need fewer restrictions and we need we need to stop arresting people and just let people out of out of prison for nonviolent cannabis offenses and expunge the records of those who have who've already served their time. Uh, from your lips to God's ears, but I got to tell you, I think that you know we can take a look at how divided we are as a nation, and there are so many people who still feel the way they felt back in 1937, where you know they they, they you just 
If you do something like that where you expunge records, oh my Lord, that means you're letting all those black and brown people out of prison. You can't do that. Are you kidding me? So, you know, um, there are those who feel as if, you know, we still need a divide in this country. And I think they're going to ride this out for, from my perspective, I think it's going to get ridden out for at least another three to four years before, you know, somebody only because of their own financial incentive. You take a look at what happened with the hemp, you know, the farm bill. I mean, only because McConnell had a personal financial stake in this from his constituents standpoint in Kentucky and, you know, the Carolinas that wanted to make a buck off of hemp. That's the reason why we got the hemp bill, because, you know, it was something that he could throw his constituents a bone with. Um, and until the Republicans feel more comfortable, like we've noticed that the Republicans are really falling down on the right side of this a little bit more than even Democrats are, you know, until they feel like there's a way to make money for themselves. You know, I don't think there's going to be any real changes in even the, the you know, scheduling, which could be done with a stroke of the pen and enforced. It's not just going to take a stroke of the pen. It's going to take the stroke of the pen and then that pen stroke trying to force Congress because Congress is the ones who are in charge of scheduling at the end of the day. It's going to take that stroke of the pen to put pressure on Congress to change the law. Yep. Yep. I, you're right. I mean, there, there's so much work to be done and so many different ways that people have imagined um, getting that work done. And, you know, you're right. The thing is, cannabis, as you know, is not really a partisan issue anymore when it comes to the general population of the U.S. Even the majority of Republicans now think that it should be legal, right? Something like 90-something percent of Americans for medical use, right? And medical then, use. I and mean, then I think we're in the high 60s right now for uh, recreational use. Yeah, exactly. So I think that it could be one of those issues where we could actually agree, you know, <laughs> um, but it's about the implementation and how it gets, you know, how it gets through. That's the issue. I think that Republicans at the federal level are interested in the, the business aspect of it. And Democrats at the federal level are at least they're saying that they're interested in the social equity aspect of it. So how do we get these two together and how do we you know, come through with meaningful legislation? Yeah, I'm not, I, I don't know. I'm not so sure uh, that Democrats are as supportive of social equity components as they claim to be. I mean, you know, we got a president of the United States who still calls it a gateway drug and his vices put more people in prison while she was in tenured as the attorney general of California than anybody before her. So and then she lies and says to us that, you know, well, I smoke marijuana. No, she didn't. Um, uh, you know, so I think we got to get. You know, I, I think Republicans may be the the answer to this, unfortunately, um, and that may take them years to make up their mind. Um, what do you think, though, the responsibility of the cannabis industry is in this all? I, I have been completely taken aback by you know some of the ridiculousness that our industry is doing, like creating, you know. Um, THC Delta 8 or THCO, you know, derivative chemicals that are, are not naturally occurring in the plant, um, but have to be chemically induced, trying to skirt legislation is only shining a light on things that are wrong, I think, that will give, you know, the DEA and the Fed more excuses to come down on our head. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that there does need to be more accountability in the industry for um, educating consumers well um, and making sure that, or maybe not making sure, but educating people so that they're not using products that are inappropriate for them. You know, we don't need to steer new consumers to dabs or high concentrated products. Like we, you know, there, there needs to be a really thorough education process that helps people understand cannabinoids and how they affect them. Starting low and going slow is the best, you know, way to, to calibrate your own dose. But that's something that, you know, doesn't always get communicated in dispensaries. Sometimes it's just like people try to sell you the highest THC product that they can because they think that's what everyone's after. Um, so there does need to be more accountability in terms of the industry. And yes, these other sort of synthetic cannabinoids that are popping up all over the place, they're a little troubling. They're more than a little troubling to me as well. Um, most of them are not lab tested. They're not necessarily clean of heavy metals and pesticides and solvents that were used to create them. And, um, you know, they're potentially a safety issue, really. Like we we can say with confidence that used responsibly, the cannabis plant is safe, but all the synthetics and derivatives, we don't really know that much about yet. And then, you know, the, when you say the cannabis plant is in nature safe, we've crossbred and changed the plant so much in the last five to 10 years that you know, I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, every single year we come up with a new strain that people claim to be their favorite strain because, you know, they keep pushing the envelope of breeding in more and more and more and more and more THC. I, I, at some point in time, I think we're going to recognize the fact that that number isn't representative of what it does to you. I mean, you know, uh, so what's the difference between 27 and 31 percent THC? Hmm. Don't know. We've not tested it long enough to figure out whether or not it has any impact on the endocannabinoid system. Does the endocannabinoid system even recognize it the right way? Does it take longer for it to literally be affected by the CB1 connectors uh, in your brain? Uh, does it sit there dormantly waiting for uh, to be, you know, actually antagonized uh, those receptors? We don't know. Um, yet the industry keeps trying to push the envelope to the point that you know, you got people who are having bad experiences and all it's going to take is, you know, somebody to have a really, really, really bad over the top experience with THCO or Delta 8. And that gives the DEA a reason to stomp down on everybody's head. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I am very cautious about this, uh, all these new synthetics and derivatives that are coming out. And, and generally, if people have access to good quality cannabis flower, I think that is the best choice, the healthiest choice um, for, for most of us. Uh, of course, those who are medicating for specific conditions might need ultra, you know, concentrated products, whether that's THC or some other cannabinoid. Um, and I want those to be available for them. But I, yeah, I, I think that the industry needs to do a better job at educating new consumers and making sure that the products they put out there actually are safe and are tested. Absolutely. So uh, what are some of the other downsides that you see to cannabis use? So I have a whole chapter in the book on downsides to cannabis use because I lived through one of them with my husband having cannabis use disorder, basically. And it's not, you know, I, I don't like to call it, you know, addiction in the way that some other things are certainly addictive. But, you know, dependency, he had some dependency on it. And, and it's a clinical condition. So I think that that was worth uh, exploring and talking about in the book because 
truly, I believe that if used intentionally, if used mindfully, the right cannabinoids for you, the right doses, the right modes of consumption, it's a really health supporting thing. But you can overuse anything. You can overuse, you know, exercise, food, you know, even stuff that's good for you, right? So cannabis to me, I, I just I want people to be really very aware of how to consume, you know, healthfully and responsibly. So I talk about um, overuse disorder. I talk about there's some there's mixed research on mental health issues that can develop from uh, high exposure to THC over time. So we don't know if this is causative or correlative, right? We don't know if you know the high THC exposure is causing um, symptoms like or uh, conditions like schizophrenia. But we do know that there is some correlation. Um, and so it could be that people who are predisposed to certain mental illnesses are using cannabis to self-medicate. And that would not be a causative situation at all. But since we don't really know, I think that it's it's prudent for most people who aren't medicating for a condition to just be cautious with the amount of THC. Not, you know, terrified, but just, you know, mindful, right? Um, that's, and I, that's, where, that's where I know you cover microdosing in your in your chapter, do you not? Yes, I do. I talk a lot my I talk a lot about microdosing, particularly because I think for moms, there are a lot of moms who just say, I wanna, I wanna feel a little more relaxed. I want to feel a little more present with my kids. I just, I want to, at the end of the day, not feel that heavy load of my to-do list and all the things I've got to do tomorrow. And instead of, you know, drinking a couple glasses of wine and then feeling like crap the next day, I'd rather take a five or a 10 milligram edible and hang out with my, with my family. So I'm really speaking to those women and moms or just people who, who want to tune in with cannabis, but they, you know, but they don't have time to feel really, really altered maybe, and they, or they don't want to. Hey, do you, I mean, do you feel like that some moms still feel there's a stigma though, right? Oh yeah. There's still a huge stigma. And, you know, some of the other moms that I know on social media, for instance, have gotten messages and comments when they talk about being a mom. you know, you're an irresponsible parent, you're, you know, bad example for your kids, like, you know, you're dangerous, et cetera. So yes, there are stigmas and stereotypes that persist, but I think that this movement, this mom movement of just being more open, showing ourselves as regular people, you know, good parents, not perfect, but, you know, good parents, people showing up and doing their their role in the world um, who also enjoy cannabis. I think the more women and people, just every people who can do that, the, the, the quicker we'll get to that uh, to that place of destigmatization. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, uh, the, it, before, you know, there was a cannabis, I mean, you know, there was the advice that, you know, it's okay for a mom to have a glass of wine at the end of the day to relax. Well, if she can have a glass of wine to relax, why can't she have a little cannabis to relax? And I agree with you that, uh, you know, um, people have to understand how, A, you know, everybody's an individual and cannabis consumption is is individualized. And so people need to recognize what is microdosing? How can I do that? How can I, instead of taking like, you know, a, a... three-second inhalation, you can take a partial second inhalation, a tenth of a second inhalation, inhalation, and probably you're going to get in that inhalation maybe three, four milligrams of THC, if that, maybe two, and just sit on that. That might be more than enough to just help you relax. Absolutely. You know, because of the way that cannabis interacts with our bodies, with our, you know, CB1 and CB2 receptors, as you as you mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes it really just takes a very small dose to help bring us up to that place of balance, of homeostasis, of feeling, you know, physiologically, mentally, spiritually, all these things 
settles and okay. And, you know, to me, like that's, that's one of the gifts that cannabis brings is that ability to just help us feel like ourselves. You know, I, I, I feel more like myself, not less when I'm consuming because it enhances the parts of me that just pay more attention to connection and, you know, beauty and goodness. And, you know, I, I just, I want more of that feeling in the world. I think that cannabis can, can connect people. It can help us, you know, live better, treat each other better. Um, it can solve so many of our environmental problems or at least help. Um, so I just have tremendous hope for the future when it comes to, to cannabis. And what are you working on next, Danielle? Yeah, well, I'm still freelancing and writing about cannabis and moms and, and uh, doing a lot of work on Instagram to get the message out there. And, you know, I am interested in writing a second book on psychedelic microdosing and moms. Um, so mm -hmm. that's another area that I think is just really ripe for exploration. Obviously, we're getting so much research on um, the benefits of psychedelics now. So that's that's probably my next project. Doesn't it kind of, it, it doesn't throw you a little bit about how quickly the the medical community is turned towards psychedelics as if they have some sort of epiphany that, you know, they should be made legal faster than cannabis. It, it throws me a little bit about how we accept that, but we don't accept cannabis. There is a double standard and it is puzzling. It is definitely puzzling. I think some of it has to do with just, just the, the immense stigma of the whole, you know, prohibition reefer bandis era and the, you know, incredible difficulty of doing good research on cannabis until recently, you know, good, like solid research. Um, so, you know, but, but yeah, you're, you're right. There is in some ways in the medical community, especially the like, you know, psychology and psychiatry community, a little more acceptance of medical use of psychedelics than of cannabis. And it's puzzling. It's, it's puzzling to me because, you know, people always claim, you know, well, we need to get more research done on cannabis before I accept it. And they don't realize that in the last year alone, there was well over 3,500 peer-reviewed, published documents on cannabis. There's been close to 30,000 of them in the last 10 years. There's more research done on cannabis than has been done on aspirin, <laughs> than has been done on alcohol, than yeah. has been done on, on psychedelics, yet we demand more research on cannabis, but don't demand more research on psychedelics. There's ketamine clinics opening up all over the country. You have ayahuasca and you know psilocybin clinics opening up all over the world. And people will accept that, but they won't accept the person just smoking a little cannabis. Crazy. Well, I think some of that has to do with sort of the the like clinical setting that a lot of these psychedelics clinics are, you know, are are offering it in. Whereas with mm -hmm. medical with medical cannabis, you go and you get your card, you purchase it, and then you consume it at home. So I think there's this like sus, you know, suspicion that people have about like consuming your medicine at home. Whereas if it's supervised in a clinic, it's legit or something weird like that. Right. Yeah. You might be right. You might be right. Well, look, I can't say thank you enough. I mean, we're looking forward to whatever you're working on next. So I'd love to have you back. If you know, there's something that you want to talk about, or you got a new article that's about to come out. If people want to reach out to you, how would they get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, so they can find me on Instagram at Danielle Simone brand. Um, also my website is Danielle Simone brand.com. And my book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, Bookshop, all the places you buy books. And has that been difficult for you? I mean, I, I know recently there's been some pushback even about literature being, you know, disseminated on cannabis. Have you had any pushback or, or are you able to sell your book clear, uh, openly? 
So I, I am able to sell the book openly. I'm, I'm traditionally published by not one of the big five publishers, but, you know, by an independent, um, you know, middle-sized publisher. However, where I run into the most um, hangups is on social media, getting banned or deactivated or shadow banned um, and all these different platforms simply for promoting responsible, you know, awareness-based um, consumption, or even not promoting consumption, just promoting awareness and acceptance. I know it's so strange to me that you, your book should be under education, not necessarily under, you know, promotion. So I don't understand why you would get banned at all just by giving people some information. But we face that here at Let's Be Blunt quite often. You know, one wrong comment, and next thing you know, they try to ban me for a week. And it's like, for what? We were just talking about information. I don't get it. But it's almost as if they just don't want people to know the truth. And I think that's where a lot of that comes from. So we wish you well, wish you success in everything you're doing. And I'm hoping, again, if you have something new coming out, make sure you reach out to us. And we'd love to have you back, okay? Thank you, Montel. And thank you for what you're doing to change the narrative and, and decrease these stigmas. Because, you know, it, it takes people like you who have the platform and the visibility to really be brave and be out there. So thank you. Well, I thank you too. So I'm going to thank you for being part of Let's Be Blunt today. And I'm going to thank all of you for tuning in and watching. And make sure you tune into the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also. So please send us your comments.